This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is the fall line. The fall line premiered in June of 2017. We started this podcast unsure where it would end up, but with one clear goal in mind, to increase public knowledge of the case of Danette and Jeanette Millbrook, who disappeared from Augusta, Georgia in 1990. In the past two years, the show has gone in directions we never imagined. Five seasons covering 12 cold cases from Georgia and beyond. Dozens more coming in the next year and over 30 episodes. The show's goals have become more specific as we've developed. We look for cases where little or no coverage exists, significantly adding to the knowledge bases of these cases and the public awareness of them. That's become our goal. We work with families and law enforcement whenever we can. It's been an incredible honor to do so, and we plan to keep at it. Without a doubt, the best part has been you, the audience. Listeners have raised a $10,000 reward for the Millbrook Twins. You have erected and then continuously funded a billboard in Augusta, one that advertises that reward for nearly two years. When Karen and Georgia donated a signed copy of their book for a giveaway, My favorite murder listeners alone raised nearly $3,000, covering nine full months of billboard rent. You've also raised money for Raymond Green's reward fund. You've supported families of the missing online by joining in rallies and walks and handing out flyers or writing to local officials. You've combed through NamUs looking for matches. You suggest cases, make connections, look for any information that might help. You prove time and time again that the true crime community cares about cold cases and victims who never made it onto primetime TV. In short, you're amazing, and we're thankful that you're here. We get a lot of messages asking for updates on the cases we've covered, so we've put together this episode with the help of some of the family members and experts who've been featured on the show. We wish that we could tell you today that a case has been fully closed, resolved, with no questions left. There are new leads and new developments, and we hope someday we can post an update that a case has been well and truly solved, but that day hasn't come yet. For now, talking about what has been done and what will be done and what could be done and how you can help is our best shot. We hope that the updates in this episode will encourage audiences to share the cases on social media and raise funds for the various rewards, nonprofits, and investigative funds the families have established. But before we start with the updates, we want to tell you what's coming next with our show and where you can find it. 
Over the next year, we'll be releasing 34 episodes. That's five seasons and 12 bonus episodes. There will be long-form and episodic releases, and you can expect to hear us cover stories from all over the South. From unidentified persons, to the missing and murdered, to the wrongfully accused, you'll hear of cases dating back to the turn of the century and those that are in the headlines today. We're covering the victims, the unidentified, and those whose cases haven't reached resolution of a number of serial killers, including Samuel Little. Also coming up in the next year, more cold cases that have faded from the media or were never there in the first place. Unsolved murders, real stories that inspired urban legends, ignored deaths that occurred during the war on drugs, wrongful convictions, interviews with experts in crime. We'll never put unsolved cases behind a permanent paywall, but you will have the chance to hear full-length bonus episodes on Stitcher Premium long before they hit the main feed including two- and three-part series. Two preview premium episodes will drop on our feed this winter, and there are many more to come. So be sure to check out Stitcher Premium to hear them first while you're waiting for the next season. And if you sign up for premium, you'll also have access to ad-free versions of our future main feed releases. We'll be back on the main feed in February of 2020 with a new Between the Lines series, covering standalone cases from South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. And you won't have to wait long between series. The next season, Carolina Girls, will be out in March. Our publications will remain steady throughout the year. So make sure to stay subscribed and follow on social media to see video, infographics, and more behind-the-scenes context of the cases. And we'll let you know when those Stitcher Premium series begin. Now, we'll start the updates where we began, with the story of Shante Sturgis and her sisters, Danette and Jeanette Milbrook. To fully grasp what their family has faced, be sure to listen to season one. It was fully remastered in the summer of 2019. We've already told you about the reward and the billboard, but there's plenty of other things happening in Augusta. Over the past two years, there's been a lot we've kept off the air. Leads developed, then passed on to authorities in hopes they would be pursued. Okay, so here's the big news. The twins have become the focus of an Oxygen Network special. Their show, called The Disappearance of the Millbrook Twins, features Shantae, Miss Louise, and, for the first time on television, a thorough look at the twins' story. The special, which premiered on Oxygen on November 23rd, follows the twins' case from its beginning, when the original investigator reportedly felt they were runaways, to when their case was closed in 1991, just a little over a year after they'd gone missing. We asked Shantae to discuss what the last two years have been like for her and her family, and how she feels about where the twins' case stands today. Just a note as you're listening on time and place in relationship to the twins' story. We spoke to Shantae while the documentary was still being made. So, um, basically, well, since the podcast, um, I feel as if it's a lot of people that know about my sisters because before 2017, well, it's pretty much before 2013, nobody knew anything about my sisters. 
And then when the podcast came about in 2017, you know, I felt kind of hopeful and happy about the, um, the case being back open. Plus, a podcast was being done of my sister's. And it made me, um, you know, feel real good about that. It made me feel hopeful that now that a lot of people know about them being missing, you know, it can probably bring them home. So, I mean, because before we, we had nothing, no, no kind of leads, anything. One of the themes that we've heard from a lot of the families that we worked with is um, the difficulty of waiting years and years, and especially when your hope gets built up that something might happen, and then things continue not to happen. Can you talk about that waiting? You said I can say what I want to say, right? Yeah, say it. It's been pretty much hell. I mean... Just think if your family had been missing since 1990 and nobody knew they was missing but the police, but they didn't help you. And then all of a sudden, 20-something years later, a podcast had to come about in order for people to know that they're out there. It's hurtful. It makes you think people just didn't care. For a very long time, I didn't think people cared because they've been, they been gone for so long and not one person tried to help until the podcast. And that's when I realized that it was people that did care, some people, but they just didn't know. Had they knew, we probably wouldn't, wouldn't be here today. We probably know where they at by now. I can call down there several times and I be getting I get told the same answer over and over. Oh, we're looking into this, we're looking into that. Um we'll give you a call. I'll never hear nothing from them. I have to call them. So if they don't have the time to take out of their day, which I know it be busy, they should be able to take the time out and say, Hey, but let's get these, this person involved, the GBI involved, somebody, the FBI. Have you ever asked them directly to please get the GBI involved? I have. I asked them to get the GBI involved. But they're saying to me, basically, they have nothing to go on. They have nothing to go on in order to get the GBI involved. But I think if they get the GBI involved, all the things that was said, that are supposed to have been said, that happened, maybe they can investigate it. They can investigate it thoroughly more than what we can. I don't know. We talked to Shantae about how she felt about making the podcast and then the Oxygen special. Because participating meant walking a lot of people through her family's trauma again and again and again. I really wanted this for my mom 
because it's a lot of women out here that are mothers. And I know they couldn't imagine themselves without their kids. And she been without her girls almost 30 years. I think the sheriff's department should be more. I mean, I know they have other cases that they have to work on. Stuff happen every day. But they've been gone for almost 30 years. They should take their time out and say, hey, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to find these girls. Even if they have to sit in one particular investigator on it and get them to, you know, do what they're supposed to do. And that's the look for them. Can you talk about the experience of making a TV documentary about your sister's case? The cameras. <laughs> it's exciting to me in a way, but then it's sad at the same time because I still don't know if they're going to ever find them. I know, you know, and I'm grateful that they're do doing a um, documentary on them. Now, the whole world will know what my family went through and how the, the sheriff's department failed my sisters. And they did. They failed them tremendously because had they took the time out to do their job in 1990, we wouldn't be where we're at today. This is going to take your sister's case to a scale it's never been at before with millions of people seeing it. So I guess my question would be, with us not knowing yet what the outcome will be, we know that viewers are going to be seeing a lot and finding out a lot. If you could ask the national audience to do something, what would it be? I would like for them to look thoroughly into it. If they see them, if somebody seen something, somebody heard something, somebody saw something, get in contact with somebody and let them know something, you know, whatever it is that they know. A small something could be turning to something big, you know. I'm so grateful that they're doing the documentary. And I want the listeners to know, you know, before they throw judgment or anybody throw judgment towards my mom, she was a good mom. She had no idea that this was going to happen. Nobody knew that this was going to happen. One thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was you've talked a lot about being grateful to various people and to the podcast and to the documentary, but how much have you stopped and thought about the fact that you absolutely did all of this? I mean, do you ever look back on the past two years and realize it was your 20 odd years of work that got the case from zero to where it is today? I really didn't even think about it like that though. The only thing I thought about, those are my sisters and I got to try to do something. If nobody's going to do anything, I have to at least try, you know. Even if the outcome don't turn out how I would like it to, I still need to try. So, I mean, I feel good about myself, but I wasn't really doing it for me. I was doing it for my mom.
There is a lot more to hear from Shantae and about the twins on that Oxygen special, so please do check it out. It's been two years now since we covered the case of Monica and Michael Bennett, siblings from Brunswick, Georgia, who disappeared in 1989, all while helping Michael's father move. Monica and Michael shared the same mother, but the man we called John wasn't related to Monica. He was her stepfather and Michael's biological parent. John and the sibling's mother, who we called Jane, had recently separated. This came after Monica reported to a school counselor that John had been molesting her. With the support of her older sister, Sheila, Monica moved out of her mother's home and in with her biological father. Michael hadn't wanted to believe the accusations, but after he walked in on his father attempting to assault his sister, he fully supported Monica, and Michael also left his parents' house. The teens were last seen by their mother's sister, their aunt, on their way to help John, who had temporarily moved into an apartment. He wanted their help to pack his belongings for another move, this time from Brunswick, Georgia to Alabama. That's the last time anyone saw Monica and Michael. It was days before they were reported missing by John and Jane, and then they told the police that the two were runaways. John and Jane reconciled and moved the entire family, including all the remaining siblings under the age of 18, to Alabama. The oldest child, Sheila, who was married and pregnant with her first child when Monica and Michael disappeared, she stayed in Georgia. She's the one person who has never stopped looking for her siblings. There's much more to Monica and Michael's story and to Sheila's, so be sure to listen to season two. On our end, there is a bit of an update to share about this case. We did receive an important tip after the season aired, and we shared that information with law enforcement. For obvious reasons, we can't be more detailed about its nature. Other than that, though, things have been quiet with the case. We spoke to Sheila this October, nearly two years after we released the season on her brother and sister. Have there been any developments in the case? There has um, not been any new developments, um, at least that none that I'm aware of, no. Can you talk about, as a family member, what it's like? to to sit and wait for news and to not have any come? It can be very uh, frustrating um, because there's always that question in the air about um, where are they? Um, is there going to be anyone to come forth or, you know, bring any information to light? And some people may not be aware that even the smallest um piece of information, even if they feel like it's irrelevant, it could be something really big, you know, to the case. But it's just frustrating not having that that answer or that closure. Do you know if any tips came in after the show? More uh, just um, hearsay, not nothing factual, um, but nothing that can be confirmed. So it may have started some discussion in the community? Yeah. Yeah, just uh, more discussion than anything. Not necessarily um, anyone coming to coming forth and bringing any new information. Is there anything else that you would want to share with listeners about the case? Um, the only thing I would want to share is just to, no matter what 
if you know anything, whether it seems small or irrelevant, just bring it forth. Mention it to an agent. Just tell whatever it is that you know, because you never know if that little piece of information could lead into something else. So, And I know it's been so long, you know, they may not feel like it's relevant. Absolutely. But we've heard that again and again. If someone was in town that day and remembers mm-hmm. driving to work, um, mm-hmm. just call and, and talk about what you remember. It has been a long time, but anything that seems irrelevant to people might be relevant to the case and they just don't realize it. Absolutely. Roughly six months ago, we were told that Brunswick PD intended to conduct a search in a specific area, but we can't share that geographic information on air. We also recently spoke with the local GBI regional office, and after a conversation with the agents, we can report that they view this case as open and active. They're always seeking tips that could aid in resolution in Monica and Michael's case, so if you can help, please call that GBI regional office at 912 729-6198. When three women disappear in Santa Ana, California, without a trace, it takes a bold, unwavering detective to seek justice. Detective Julissa Trapp has always wanted to be a cop. And she is, but she's not like other cops. Not only is she the only woman on an otherwise all-male homicide squad, but she does her job in ways that some might view as unconventional. In a brand new podcast from Wondery and the Los Angeles Times, Detective Trapp takes you into the life of a cop who conducts herself relentlessly. Hosted by award-winning journalist Chris Gofford, Detective Trapp is the story of a detective who fights through her own personal struggles and society's indifference to bring a serial killer to justice. Trapp's strongest resource for catching dangerous criminals? Personal experience. While listening, make sure to subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening now. You can also find the link in the episode notes. They're sports' greatest heroes, displaying superhuman-like abilities to overcome intense pressure. But when it comes to the downfalls of fame, money, and ego, they're far more human than super. Every Thursday, Parcast Network's original podcast, Sports Criminals, keeps score on the darker side of sports. Each episode chronicles the meteoric rise and fall of some of the sports world's biggest names. Track Lance Armstrong's wild ride from Tour de France hero to performance-enhancing pariah. Discover the right and wrong calls referee Tim Donahue made, gambling his way out of the NBA and into prison and skate closer to the circumstances surrounding Tanya Harding, her Olympic rival, and the assault that captivated the world. From record-breaking highs to all-time lows, they're the names you thought you knew, and the crimes you'll never forget. Visit parcast.com sportscriminals, or search for Sports Criminals in the Spotify app and listen free today. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous, professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love the results. Gorgeous, 
shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color you can do at home, and look as if you just came from the salon. What makes Madison Reed Color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. I work two full-time jobs, and without Madison Reed, I'd forever be battling grown-out roots and fading color. Madison Reed's convenient kits arrive at my home like clockwork, and I'm able to maintain color I love without losing a whole day at the salon. I spend less, have more time for the podcast, and get color I love with Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Fall Line listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code FALLLINE, F-A-L-L-L-I-N-E. That's code FALLLINE at madison-reed.com. Next are updates on Season 3, which premiered in January of 2019. The season, called The Grady Babies, covered the kidnappings of seven infants between 1978 and 1996. All were taken from, or as a direct result of, their time at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Two of the babies, now adults, are still missing today. Donna Green is the mother of Raymond Green the first baby to begin that streak, at a time when Grady was number one in the nation for infant abductions. Season three listeners really connected with Donna, who at the time of our recording had spent decades working as an advocate for missing persons and their families. In early 2019, we also reported that she was working on a memoir and that she hoped to begin a podcast or radio show to increase coverage for missing persons cases. We see Donna often. We're lucky enough to live in the same city, Atlanta, so it's easy to meet up. Recently, we caught up with her at my co-host Brooke's house to hear about her projects, about Raymond's case, and about her hopes for the future. So since we've released the Grady Baby season, can you tell us some of the things that you have been doing in terms of advocacy? Uh, One of the things that I've been doing is spotlight on the missing, which means what we do is we find cases that, um, that cold cases, it's it's called, it's cold case spotlight is what it's called. And we find cases that's, um, that, you know, people is missing and they've been missing for a while. And what we'll do is we'll find, you know, try to locate their families if we can. And then what we do is we, um, we go out to the last place they were seen. And we do rally there for them. We give out flyers. We stop people. We talk to people. We bring their attention back to that case. So we just recently did a case, um, Alicia Smiley, down at um, uh, CNN. Uh, We couldn't get in touch with her family or anything like that, but that case really uh, means a lot to me. I remember when that little girl got missing, so we went down there anyway in the hot sun, and we rallied for her and gave out um, flyers and stuff and just stop people talking to them about it because you know then it was the Omni now CNN so we do that uh, also I I still work with National Missing Children the Team Hope program uh, dealing with parents that have missing children as well as um, I work with my own parents as well that have missing children in my own cases and I have a radio show uh, it's called The Ambassador for the Missing 
it's two hours every Thursday from 10 to 12. And what I do with that is I, um, I, I spotlight cold cases there as well. And we talk about missing. We talk to parents of missing and we deal with mental health stuff and we deal with everything dealing with the missing. So you really sort of moved forward with your vision of how you wanted to use your skills to help families who have had people go missing. Most definitely, because I know what that feels like. And it's not a good feeling. And I, I don't want anybody to feel like I felt like didn't no one care. So for me to reach out to families, to let them know, hey, I got your child and I want to spotlight your child. I want to bring awareness back to your child. It means a lot to me to be able to do it. So even though they're honored that I do it, really the pleasure is all mine. So what is going on with Raymond's case, if anything, and what has your relationship been like with the department um, since the show has come out? There's not much going on with Raymond's case at this time, um, but I do talk to Sergeant Mitchell uh, at, the, at the Atlanta PD, and she seems to be really, really open to, um, you know, what we're doing and trying to help as much as she can. So she's open to the cold case spotlight. She's open to whatever. And she just called me recently, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, talking about a new um, DNA thing that they're doing there. And she wanted me to be a part of that. So we'll be doing that. They're going to send somebody down from Team Adam, National Missing Children. They're going to come down and we're going to do that. And then they're going to be on my show as well. So they are definitely um, doing better, I say, with Raymond's case, but as far as Raymond's case itself, it's not much going on. Do you know what they're wanting to do with the DNA? She said that it was a a new thing that they have now. I can't think of the word that she used, but it was a new thing that they have now. And they do more testing, and they have certain uh, people that's, that's professionals in that field that's going to look into the genealogy of all of it and everything, and she felt like that this would be a perfect match for me. That's awesome. It is awesome. So can you tell us about some of the projects that you've had in the last year that you are hoping to extend into future years that might be yearly mm-hmm. events? Well, one of them is the gala. Uh, I started having the gala last year. It was my first year. I have it coming up again November 2nd. Um, for me, that's just for Raymond. And even though we do have other other people there that um, come in and they, they, they spotlight their kid, you know, they come in and they buy a table or whatever. For me, it's for Raymond because I feel like nobody never showed up for him. And I, I'm waiting on that day when people really show up for Raymond. I never had that. And I, I will just... I, I don't even know what that feels like for people to sh- just show up and say, I, I come because of him. So, um, and I'm just waiting on that day. Our sales are, uh, um, we're hoping that we can really sell the tickets and fill the place up this year. Um, but even at that, I'm just waiting on that day. So when I do that, I feel like I'm connected to him, you know, out of all the other negative stuff. When I do that gay love, every every November, I do something for him. Every November, I do something for him. Um, I just, I, I still look for that day when it just blows my mind, the people that shows up for Raymond, you know. So every year we do that, and I'm going to continue to do that. That's one of the things I'll continue to do. This year is our first walk as well. Um, we have it in uh, October the, the 
12th, which is next Saturday, we're having a walk for the missing, um, just to bring awareness back to the missing. And I'm thinking we're probably going to do that every year as well. You know, this is our first year, so we're hoping that as, as the years go by, it climb. But a walk for the missing uh, is just that people come out and they represent their missing, you know, they, they, they're there standing in for that missing. Yeah. And Shakimia's family will be there as well. Shakimia's family will be there, yes. I actually met with her aunt um, a couple of weeks ago. And so she's looking forward to it. She's going to be there, and they're going to represent at the gala as well. Now, I don't think Veronica would be at the walk, but I talked to her last night. She would be at the gala. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the experience when listeners are ready for an update show, mm -hmm. they can be so excited to hear progress in the cases. Mm -hmm. Can you tell them a little bit about the experience of waiting and having years go by and having there be no progress? It's like a silent suffering in a sense, um, having to wait, not knowing, um, because you know, you get this time of the year and then maybe you have the media out or you have somebody want to interview you and, and stuff like that. And then when that date gone or that time is gone, that's it. You know, and if, and if nothing comes of that, no one calls in or, or any tips, anything, it may be another year or two, three, four, five before your case even comes up before somebody to say, hey, look, let's just take a look and see what she's doing with this case or has anything happened. So for us, the parents, um, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like a silent, it is like a silent suffering because you're wondering and you're hoping and you're praying and, and everything, but you got to keep that hope alive and you got to, like, I believe hope is going to bring Raymond home. You know, I believe that's what's going to bring him home. So um, you got to find something to do in that time. If you're just sitting there, you're just waiting. That's one thing. And that's a hard thing to do. But if you take your energy and, and, and all your resources and everything and you put it toward trying to help somebody else in the process of, of that waiting, it makes it so much better. And for me to, to be able to help a family or to spotlight a family's case or to sit and talk to a family, you know, um, that means so much to me just to, to give up my time to do that. I would do it willingly and always with a ready mind. So because I, I'm there. You know, I had someone call me just a couple of weeks ago, and they was upset because their daughter had been missing for a certain amount, a couple of years or whatever, and they was crying, and they said, I, I really wish I was just like you. I wish I could handle it just like you. And I said, no, you don't want to be like me. I'm 40 years in. You don't want to be 40 years in, you know. You're two years in, you're doing exactly what, you, what you're supposed to be doing at two years, you know. So to be able to be there for those parents and to get them to understand that, um, every time I do that, then I feel like I'm connected to Raymond. Every time I help somebody else, I feel like I'm connected to him. And then again, I don't want those parents feeling like nobody care or nobody understand because I do care and I, and I do understand. Does the waiting have a loneliness to it over the years? It have an uncertainty to it because you really don't know. You know, you don't know whether they're dead. You don't know whether they're alive. You don't know whether they're next door or across country. You don't know. So um, it has a it has a, a uncertainty to it. What's going to happen? Because sometimes I'm getting older, and um, I just had a friend that uh, recently died, and he still died, still looking for his daughter. You know, 
And um, we had talked and he said he, you know, just he didn't want to leave here without finding out what happened to his daughter. And um, so, you know, you, you have that uncertainty. My whole thing is I can I can stand strong because I know God and I know that he got the whole world in his hands. So Raymond and I are both in his hands and that's where we connect that in his hands. So for that reason there, I feel like God knows what's best and that in it's time. So I have this thing where I know that every I pray that God bring somebody's child home today. If not mine, somebody, you know, heal somebody's heart today, uh, lighten their load today. But every time a child comes home, Raymond is in that line somewhere. So every time a child comes home, that puts him closer to the front, closer to one day it being his time, you know. So I have that. And, and so when I look and see where well, this child came home or that child came home or they found this child or whatever, that's a good thing as well, you know. So I just, it, it's a praying thing. But yeah, you have your uncertainties and some days you have your loneliness in there, you know, but um, you got to find a way to get through that. Because it can take you down if you allow it. It can take you down to a place that maybe you can or maybe you can't come out of. And I don't. I choose not to go there. So as much as I can give of myself to somebody else, then I know my work ain't in vain. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your book? Um, they may be looking forward to being able to read it. Can you talk about the process of writing it and what your hopes are? Um, the book would be totally finished by December. I worked on it yesterday. I worked on it this morning before I left. I just had to add a couple of more stories that I didn't want to add. Um, the, I figured out that one of the reasons why I did not want the book, um, I couldn't finish the book, is because I had to do a story of Raymond in the book. And although I did I did the story of Raymond, it was pretty much a shell of the story because I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to deal with the emotions of Raymond not being here. I never really dealt with that. So I didn't want to deal with that. So I just, I kept putting the book off and kept putting the book off. And I was at um, one of the book writers clubs uh, one of her at her house. And she put a song on while she was talking to me about my book. And the song just took me back to Raymond. And she said, you really need to go on and write that. So I, I've been dealing with that. I've been dealing with the process of that and dealing with the grief of all that. But I'm getting through that process. So now I'm back in my creative flow again. So I'm writing the book. So it should be done relatively soon. Um, hopefully, because I have I, those things that I've blocked out has come back to surface and I've dealt with some of those emotions. So now I can write the book and be accurate in what I'm doing. So I'm about finished with the book and it should be finish it, it should it'll be finished before December but um hopefully it'll be totally ever edited edited and everything by then and I'm hoping by February or March we'll be having a book signing. How can listeners support you in the work that you're doing? Well we are always looking for uh sponsors, you know, with the show. I came up with this show because I wanted to do something else. I wanted people to be able to come on and tell their story their way. That was one of the main reasons I came up with that, with the show, and um, wanted to be able to spotlight more cases, not only go out and do it, but be able to do it on the radio. The show is in 133 countries, so for me, as much as I can get people, people information out there, I want to do that. But again, the show I pay for out of my pocket, 
um, to make sure other people's stories are told. So I'm always look, li- looking for sponsors. They can they can just email me at looking the number four Raymond the number two at gmail dot com. Again, that's looking the number four Raymond the number two at gmail dot com, and just let me know that they're willing to do that. It's Fox Trap Radio, and that's F O X T R A P Radio, R A D I O. And you can listen to me every Thursday from 10 to 12, every Thursday. As listeners probably know, Donna's situation is particularly difficult in that though Raymond is likely alive, she can publish a baby picture and hope he'll see it. He was kidnapped at just a few days old, before he'd even been photographed. And because Raymond was taken in 1978, his abductor, a woman who called herself Lisa Morris, wouldn't have faced the same hurdles modern kidnappers do. With a forged paperwork, it would have been easy enough to get him a social security card. He might not have had the odd experiences that other abductees do. The ones who go through life feeling like something isn't quite right, or have trouble applying for college or for a job. Those are the children who go looking, like Carlina White did. As for Raymond, he could very well be living in Atlanta completely unaware that his mother has been searching for 41 years. We think Donna's best bet might just be forensic genealogy, a sort of inverse of the work used in cases like the Golden State Killers, where familial connections might find a killer. Donna is already in all the major consumer DNA databases, and she's also opted into GEDmatch, just like Shante Sturgis has. But to maximize her chances of finding a relative— maybe a grandchild, or even Raymond himself. Genealogy could be the best shot. After working with the founders of the Transdoe Task Force, Anthony Redgrave and Lee Bingham Redgrave, we developed a friendship. In addition to volunteering their time to their own task force and to the DNA Doe Project, Anthony and Lee also run Redgrave Research and have often worked with adoptees. Recently, they announced that they'd be heading a new genealogy team at Othram, a forensic DNA lab. And just as a note, this company is not a sponsor or affiliated with our show in any way. Through this connection, Anthony and Lee gained access to technology and resources they'd not had in their independent genealogy business. We hope to take advantage of that merger and help Donna Green. Since we're dealing with a missing person, the Redgraves have said that this casework will be a little different. It will rely on the hope that Donna's son or any of his own children take a DNA test themselves. In the event that a possible match does show up, the Redgraves would be able to facilitate and expedite confirmatory testing for law enforcement. Roughly 20 hours of genealogy work and ongoing monitoring of DNA matches, both necessary to attempt a genealogical resolution in Donna's case, will run about $500. In that spirit, we're helping her raise the money. This would be an excellent way to support Donna and show your appreciation for her hard work. Give her another avenue toward finding her son. If you'd like to donate, please see the link in the show notes on our social media. In season four, we tackled our first episodic series, seven cases over six episodes. Updates are scant as we're mostly reliant on law enforcement for details. Understandably, they keep ongoing investigations under wraps. 
We were able to ascertain a few things, though. There's the case of Julie Doe, an unidentified transgender woman and likely murder victim who was found off a Florida highway in 1988. The DNA Doe Project's latest round of extractions have proved ineffective in developing a profile strong enough to run through GEDmatch. So Julie Waits and the Trans Doe Task Force and DNA Doe Project do too, hoping a more experimental technique will come along and prove successful. Currently, the University of North Texas is attempting an extraction from the small sample that's left. Sharing Julie's forensic sketches, especially the newest ones by Carl Koppelman, is the best way that you, the listeners, can help her case. The Trans Doe Task Force has had a recent breakthrough, though. In our Julie Doe episode, we discussed Pillar Point Doe, another victim, this time in California, who seemed to be trans or non-binary. At the writing of this episode, Trans Doe Task Force and the DNA Doe Project had successfully identified Pillar Point Doe via forensic genealogy, and they're now waiting for the final confirmation from family before marking the case as fully resolved. This is the first identification for the Trans Doe Task Force and the first known identification of a trans or non-binary doe. Other more minor updates concern Dennis Doe, the child found in an Atlanta-area cemetery in the 1990s, and the Jenkins County Jane Doe, a woman found in a dumpster in South Georgia in 1988. We wrote to the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's Office to see if any new tips had come in after the recent coverage, both on the fall line and on the podcast Inside Crime. And we heard back that they'd received the same leads that are reported any time Dennis's story hits the media. There was brief hope when a retired school teacher heard the story on local news, but the student she called in about is alive and well. We'd actually seen his name mentioned in Dennis's file as a possible match, but found that, years ago, DeKalb police had tracked him down and ascertained his welfare. It seems that, as in many other cases, Dennis's identity, the best chance at finding out who he was, lies in forensic genealogy. When we worked on our story, DeCap had been collecting quotes from various companies and working toward confirming whether they had samples strong enough to build a profile. As of the writing of this episode, we haven't received a response regarding whether forensic genealogy is currently being pursued. The Region 5 GBI office, with whom we worked on the Jenkins County Jane Doe case, provided us with the following update. The special agent assigned to the case, Dustin Peaks, wrote the following, quote, I met with our crime lab recently, and they're going to test evidence for DNA. Hopefully, this will yield a suspect profile, as well as, hopefully, the victim's profile. I have also been documenting what potential witnesses are still alive and which ones are now deceased. And that brings us to Season 5, The Disappearance of Shikimia Pate. It's only been a few months since our season ended. During our interviews with the GBI, we'd found that a new agent, one with several successful cold case closes, had been assigned to her case. Recently, we saw Shaikimia's aunt, Rotondo, at an October fundraising event, a multi-nonprofit 5K. Donna Green combined forces with the Pate family to feature both of their children and Donna's organization in the event. When we spoke, Rotunda told us that the past few months have seen a lot of law enforcement activity in and around Unadilla, engaged in efforts that seem to be related to Shai's case. 
We're being intentionally vague here. If the GBI and the sheriff wanted those details public, they'd hold a press conference. We can say that new scientific testing is being actively pursued, and that Shikimia's case, and the case of Teresa Dean from Twig County, are being actively worked. For our part, we tried out the social media techniques we learned about in episode four of season five, the ones Billy Jensen outlined in his book, Chase Darkness With Me. So far, we've run a campaign for the Millbrook twins and two for Shikimia, and we plan a targeted campaign for Wayman too. How much they help isn't easily measured. We directed tips to law enforcement and not to our page, but it certainly can't hurt. The promotions have been shared hundreds and, in some cases, thousands of times. With the Millbrook Twins documentary, the activity surrounding Shakimia's case, and the scientific advancements in identification, we hope that we can follow up with more updates. The sooner, the better. For now, we, and the listeners, can work on gathering information on more cases. We'll tell more stories and hope we can reach someone somewhere who can close a case. And we hope you'll visit our website and submit your case suggestions, cases in the southeastern United States, for possible coverage. We can't normally respond to suggestions, but we will reach out if we need more information. On social media, we recently asked our listeners to submit their questions, anything they wanted to know about the cases, the show, or how we work, via Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. We've answered most questions with these updates, but we'll post more via video on Instagram and Patreon, so keep an eye out. You can find us at Fall Line Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at falllinepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, and support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find our merch in the Exactly Right Pod Swag store. A portion of those merch proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Mm-hmm.